This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is a WTOP original podcast. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. God, Guns, and Sedition by Bruce Hoffman and Jacob Weyer. Uh, We began the book in April 2020, which was pretty much the depths of the COVID lockdown. And what I had noticed is literally within days of the lockdown in mid-March, all of a sudden, all these outlandish conspiracy theories began to circulate on the internet and on social media. Um, blaming the Jews, for example, blaming immigrants, uh, targeting Asian Americans, targeting African Americans, targeting immigrants. And the situation in the U.S. has gotten worse. We talk with Bruce Hoffman, coming up on this episode. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The rise of far-right terrorism in the U.S. How do we counter it? Counterterrorism expert Bruce Hoffman and his co-author Jacob Weyer trace the historical trajectory and they assess the present-day dangers of this violent extremist movement, which plays a huge role in the amplification of racism across the nation. The title of the book is God, Guns, and Sedition. Why did you write this book, Bruce? We actually began the book, because I have a co-author, Jacob Ware. Uh, We began the book in April 2020 which was pretty much the depths of the COVID lockdown. And what I had noticed is literally within days of the lockdown in mid-March, all of a sudden, all these outlandish conspiracy theories began to circulate on the internet and on social media, Um, blaming the Jews, for example, blaming immigrants, uh, targeting Asian Americans, targeting African Americans, targeting immigrants. And it was a pretty dark time. And it seemed to me that this was a book that was needed that would shed light on what we argue is really a long historical trajectory that was now crystallizing really in an era of social media. And then, of course, the book, you know, predates by many months, you know, seven or eight months, the events of of January 6, 2021, which we also put as part of that trajectory. And we think that's very important because many people saw January 6 is in some cases is the end, in other cases is the beginning of something even more consequential and dangerous. So what we attempted to do was to situate January 6th, and as I just said, even the COVID pandemic and lockdown and some of those conspiracy theories that were emerging and giving rise to anti-government extremism and sedition in its broader historical context. So let's break this down and considering what we want to do on this particular podcast is take a look at race in America. 
how did this, does this impact the racial problem um, and uh, the conversation in this country uh, around racism? It's inseparable, uh, JJ, because of course, you know, one of the original terrorist groups in the United States uh, was the Ku Klux Klan. And the Klan was formed, as you know, after the Civil War, during the period of Reconstruction, to um, reverse basically uh, the freeing of the slaves and to introduce another form of of, of in, in, enslavement. Um, it's interesting in the book we trace how the Klan was actually suppressed pretty ruthlessly. In fact, few people realize that the Department of Justice was created in the early 1870s, precisely to give teeth to U.S. federal efforts to suppress lawlessness, sedition, races, organized racism, I should say, uh, in the American South at the time. But what we saw is that when the Klan revives in the 19-teens and the 1920s, like all terrorist groups who search for even wider constituencies that they can appeal to, it went beyond racism and beyond a form of re-enslavement of freed persons to embrace now anti-Semitism, the worst kind of xenophobia against Catholics, for example, uh, persons from Southern and Eastern Europe in particular, also Asian Americans. We saw a parallel to the COVID period where there's a complete distrust in the 19-teens and especially the 1920s of expertise, of science. And we see how Racism, anti-Semitism, xenophobia, all kinds of prejudice and hatreds very easily get rolled into a broader movement whose endpoint is the overthrow of the United States government, the overthrow of our democratically elected regime. So precisely they can put into place a far more repressive form of government. And looking at the history that you've outlined for us in current events, Today, the way things are going in this country now, how do you believe or do you see current racism, race, 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 uh, racist tendencies? Mm -hmm. do, do you see them drawing from the, I guess, the ideology and the experiences of the KKK from its inception? Absolutely. There's a lot of talk nowadays about the great replacement theory which argues that the white race is being supplanted in Western countries by people of color or of different religious persuasions um, as part of this organized conspiracy led by the Jews and liberal elites. So it's it, it goes um, hand in glove. I would say what separates today from the past are two key elements. Firstly, these sorts of sentiments, racism, hatred, anti-Semitism, hatred of Asian Asians and Asian Americans, uh, hatred of LGBTQ communities always has existed. Let's make no mistake about it. The problem was it had limited resonance. It had potential appeal in previous centuries or decades, but limited resonance because these hate mongers could only reach a finite number of people at, same at the same time. What's happened is that social media has empowered this and has turned the internet and uh, really what I rem I'm old enough to remember the internet in the 1990s was supposed to be an engine of enlightenment and education and equality. And it's turned into rather more the opposite. So this is one thing is that these messages now are circulated and disseminated with a regularity and a pervasiveness that the hate mongers of a century or even decades ago could only have dreamt of. The second, I think, highly disquieting 
uh, development is that mainstream political figures give these sentiments top cover. Uh, at the height of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, I mean, we forget there were four to, fill it, four to five million members of the Klan across the country. Every state had a Klan chapter. In fact, the Klan was stronger north of the Mason-Dixon line in the 1920s than in the South. Uh, Indiana, Ohio, and Pennsylvania had the largest memberships. So there always was this appeal and mainstream political figures. President Harry Truman, for instance, was a member of the Klan. Uh, when he was a young man. I mean, this was something that was very accepted in civic and business um, circles. But then it ended, fortunately. But what we see in the 21st century is that it's being revived by politicians who will say things that a decade ago were unthinkable to say out loud. And that reaches a new acceptance. And, you know, in many respects, the apotheosis of this was the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, when President Trump had said there were good people on both sides. And of course, this was precisely one of the things that motivated President Biden to run for office in 2020. But we've seen the spread now of saying things that would have been unacceptable in polite or any other company just a few years ago becoming mainstream now. There are several things that I want to touch on that you mentioned, Bruce. Social media is one, political cover, and... um, this here um, that I'd like to ask about um, <clears throat> the trajectory of this kind of behavior, this kind of uh, illegal behavior and threatening behavior. Um, where do you see it heading? Where do you where do you see things like the Unite the Right rally in 2017, which, along with other events, have basically jump started um, I guess, movements across the country. Where do you see this going before we reach a point where a tipping point? Gosh, that JJ, that's that's really the big question. I think that's what worries so many people. Before the events of January 6, 2021, many would have abhorred, disdained, rejected these kinds of sentiments and thought that their consequences or repercussions would be fairly confined um, or restricted, for instance, to heinous events like the Unite the Right rally and the Tiki Torch um, march, things like that. Unfortunately, I think January 6th demonstrated that there is a wellspring of sentiment in the United States, the paragon of democracy throughout the world, where people believe that it is justified to use violence to overthrow the government and to re-engineer a different, not just form of governance, a more repressive, perhaps authoritarian one, but to re-engineer our social order, to reverse the progress we've made against hatred, against racism, against these sentiments. And really, it's an attempt to roll back the clock. And I think, to, to my mind, at least, the events of January 6th are a warning of how quickly and how easily we can descend back into an environment where the rule of law is gone, where democratic processes don't matter anymore. And all the freedoms and all the rights that we take for granted can be very quickly overturned and abrogated. I mean, that was the entire message of those individuals who stormed the Capitol. And now in this coming presidential election, there's talk of pardoning the 900 and so people who've been convicted of various crimes there. So that's, to me, that's exactly this example of rolling back the clock, reversing time, and going down a path that, look, after all, even an arch conservative 
the leading Republican of his time, uh, then Governor Ronald Reagan, who became President Reagan, but then Governor Ronald Reagan and his inaugural address in Sacramento in 1967, talked about how precious freedom and liberty was and warned that we were only a generation away from losing it. I mean, back then, that may have seemed somewhat fanciful. Nowadays, I'm not so sure. Yeah, you're exactly right about that. And one of the things you mentioned um, this political season, uh, you know, one of the things that um, I heard not too long ago talking about things people wouldn't think of saying a decade ago was one particular political candidate channeling what seemed to be Adolf Hitler, saying essentially people coming into the country talking about migrants are poisoning the blood of this country. I mean, those kinds of comments, Bruce, for older folks like myself and and others, I'm not going to put you in that category because you're still a young man, but, um, <laughs> but for older folks, hearing comments like that send chills down the spines of many. And I'm wondering, we'll get back to your book in a second, but just I want your thoughts on this. How do you think young people uh, and the people who might be victims to this kind of ideology and persuasion are reacting or thinking about this? All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Well, I think they're they're rightly blaming the baby boomers of my generation um, for leaving them inheritance and not safeguarding these freedoms. I think that young people are very scared. I mean, COVID itself, I think we underestimate. I'm you know an educator among other things, and I see it at my university that we I think tend to under un, underestimate the really disruptive and corrosive experience that that had for young people, where they can see their world literally in a matter of days in March uh, 2020, turned upside down. They put January 6, 2021 within that context because they saw watching live on TV over a course of a matter of hours how our democracy was threatened, how the citadel of our democracy and values was not just stormed in an attempt to take it over, but also desecrated. And I think for the young people, it makes them very pessimistic. It makes them doubt the things that you and I took for granted growing up, that the country was in the right, that we were for justice and equality for all people, as imperfectly as that had been achieved. It was a worthy goal that we constantly worked towards to perfect. And they, now they see that having gone out the window. They don't know who to trust anymore, who to believe. And they see a fractured, broken political system. And let's let's face it, an ineffectual Congress where invective and calumny is hurled more than actually the passage of legislation. I mean, I'm old enough to remember 23 years ago, almost 23 years ago, when Republican and Democratic members of Congress joined hands and sang God bless America on the steps of the U.S. Capitol on the evening of September 11th, 2001. That sort of uh, that sort of tableau is, is 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 unimaginable today. It's tragic. It's truly tragic, Bruce. Because I can recall, 
I was just across the street at that point working at the Voice of America on that day, and I can recall standing on the roof of the Pen- uh, on the roof of the Voice of America building watching the Pentagon burn. And later that day, the event you you spoke about where you know politicians put politics aside and joined hands and 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 expressed resolve to to never let that happen again but you know we've heard that before too never again and uh, i mean this political cover that you 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 were talking about there are people that are using this political cover clearly um to allow these kinds of heinous things to develop these kinds of heinous thoughts and and people to consider uh, planning to do these kinds of just despicable things to this country, to people, to each other. And I'm wondering, what is it that these politicians think um, that nobody sees them or do they just not care? I think they care about remaining in office and therefore they play to extremes. I mean, this is what gets attention. This is what, you know, and this is not, you know, something that's exclusive to the right either. I think that for politicians on both sides, but especially they're they're driven to both ends of the spectrum because this is where they get attention. This is part of our social media culture, but also a culture that has come to privilege um, uncivil debate and discourse as opposed to the spirit, I believe, that animated Congress in the past was to work across party lines to get things done for the betterment of the country and for the good of the people. So, yeah, and and back to that social media point. Now, the second point from your book I wanted to pick up on um, companies, big tech companies, they have to know about the role that they play. Why aren't they doing more or are they doing more to stop? the use of their platforms for this. Well, you fit, JJ, you fit the nail on the nail on the head is too many people are benefiting and in some cases profiting from extremism because the algorithms just encourage you on many social media sites to be driven to like-minded people, but even not just like-minded people, but even more extreme expressions of similar views. Um, this is why one of the big recommendations is in our book is that we need to reform Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, uh, which was which was passed in in the mid 1990s? Um, it basically does not hold social media liable for the content on its platforms, unlike mainstream media, which is liable for it. Now, in the 1990s, when the United States Congress and when the United States commercial and business sectors were trying to grow the internet and the United States dominance of it, uh, that may have arguably made sense. But that was also an era, don't forget, when the overwhelming majority of Americans, including young people, got their news from proven, accurate, established mainstream media sources. There were basically three major networks, CBS, NBC, ABC, and also to an extent PBS too, that every night had an evening news around 6.30 or 7 p.m. that people watched. There were hard copy newspapers and in many cities, multiple newspapers that people also read. There were radio stations that were less oriented towards confrontation and more to the dissemination of information. And okay, Section 230 made sense then, but let's fast forward 30 years later, where we know that most people a Reuters Institute study from Oxford University showed this, that most people between 18 and 40 get their news from social media from influencers, 
not from journalists, which means they're getting inaccurate sources of news that are more opinion or conjecture than fact. These are unedited and unmediated platforms. There's no editor that's fact-checking. I mean, every journalist, as you know, has to have multiple sources or at least two. There's absolutely no verification. And the sorts of assurances that we have that information is accurate and, um, and true have really eroded. And that's why I think if people are getting most of their news from social media, social media has to be much more accountable. And I think it's been proven that social media cannot police themselves. I mean, these are problems not just with political extremism, but with uh, sexual exploitation of children, for example, remains a major problem, what used to be called child pornography. Um, now, countries like the United Kingdom have tried to delineate what government's responsibilities are to its citizens. In 2018, the United Kingdom's Home Office and its Ministry of, of Media, Digital Culture and Sport released the Online Harms White Paper that was meant to become legislation. And it outlined what government's responsibility is to its citizens to protect them online, not just from extremism, not just from child sexual exploitation, but also even from bullying and harassment. Now, Brexit, the succession of British governments, then COVID derailed it from becoming law, but at least Parliament had begun to debate it. In the United States, we're nowhere close to even approaching this sort of discussion, but that's exactly what we argue in the book is needed. Yeah, you know, um, we could talk for an hour or more about just many things that you pointed out and uh, written in this book. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time for that today, but perhaps in the future we pick it up again. But I, I want to, before we finish, talk to you just a bit about God's guns and sedition. And um, are there some other chapters or nuggets from the book that you think are maybe your favorite or resonate more than others or are more important that you'd like to speak about before we finish today? Sure. Well, I think the most important chapter in the book is the final one, because it lays out in great detail, it's one of the largest chapters, uh, a series of policy recommendations to try to reverse what what we see unfolding in the country today. And I think uh, the approach it takes is, is a unique one. We lay out three tiers of policy recommendations, things that can be done right now that in the next three to five years will strengthen the regulatory framework, as it were. Um, for instance, uh, the need for domestic terrorism legislation. For example, many people argue um, shooting, arson, bombing, kidnapping, I mean, the things that are the stock and trade of terrorism are also crimes. And um, we can prosecute them on that basis. But I think very importantly, in the United States in the 1990s, we introduced hate crime statutes, which expressed society's opprobrium for a certain category of crime that is committed with the view of targeting people because of their race, religion, gender, um, religious beliefs, and so on. And it's very important because it expresses society's opprobrium by empowering judges, for example, to lengthen the sentences of those convicted of these crimes up to three times longer. And that's one of the big problems we see in the United States today. For instance, if you're arrested for providing material support to ISIS or Al-Qaeda, on average, you go to jail for about 13.4 years. And what we've been finding is that people 
convicted of what would otherwise be called terrorist acts or sometimes only sentenced to three to four years. Uh, the judge has to use special terrorism enhancement statutes. But our point is, why not make those laws and why not achieve a greater equity in terrorist sentencing? Let me give you a specific example of that. The founder and leader of a group that incontestably is a terrorist group, Adam Waffen, was sentenced to five years in prison. Literally, JJ, as soon as he got out of prison uh, last February, in February 2023, he plotted to stage a massive attack against the power grid around Baltimore and black out the city. Now, someone convicted of a lesser offense, let's say supporting a foreign terrorist group, is going to jail for more than twice that period of time. So clearly something is wrong there. So that's what we can do immediately. Then we talk about measures that will have a medium term impact over the next five to 10, 10 years that will um, that will uh, really um, enable the country to right itself, in essence, um, to achieve greater resilience. And these are things like enhancing digital and media literacy, teaching children in schools and churches and synagogues and mosques in community centers how to navigate the internet, how to find accurate sources of information from true experts that can be verified so that they're not subjected to really a movement that indisputably is targeting young people, especially through gaming platforms. And we see this repeatedly. And then finally, we have measures that need to be undertaken that will really pay benefits in the next 10 to 20 years. In other words, for this next generation that will break the cycle that we see of hatred and intolerance that is being spread over the decades, over the centuries in the United States, and that can start to achieve a greater degree of national unity than exists um, today. And we lay out a series of measures there as well. They're all very practical. I mean, the question is whether in this very polarized, highly politically divided country with a Congress that finds it very difficult uh, to work together, um, you know, whether we have the political will to actually implement these very sensible and realistic policy uh, recommendations. Bruce Hoffman, co-author of God, Guns and Sedition. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, U.S. authorities say hackers from the government of China are embedding themselves in critical infrastructure to be able to essentially shut down everything from communications to energy to transportation, even water systems. So what we're most concerned about is that if the People's Republic of China and its leadership decided that the time came to execute these uh, uh, operations, they're not focused solely on political or military targets. We can see from what they're positioning themselves to do that they're positioning on civilian infrastructure. So the impact is potentially to the American population. Andrew Scott is the Associate Director for China Operations with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter 
It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.